Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Good afternoon, and welcome to the third installment of our Big Book Conversations. Um, we are moving into a discussion of inventory, uh, so fourth step, tenth step, and the overall the role it plays in the overall arc of recovery. Um, this is, in a lot of ways, very much James's wheelhouse. Not only because he's, you know, more of a, a writer than I am, but also because he just finished a dissertation about recovery writing. Uh, so if you don't know it, folks, you're sitting, you're looking at Dr. Jane. It's true. It happened. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor's there. So any kind of leading thoughts in this, this part of the? Sure. Yeah. I mean, one thing is like, so this is number three. In the first part, we talked about recovered versus recovering, which was sort of about, you know, reflections on powerlessness in a way and how that follows us into recovery if we're, if we're not careful, or if we don't really catch the message. Um, it can follow us into abstinence very easily. Um, uh, or there's this, this sense of like being abstinent for a while, but not having a solution and being so destroyed by that, so messed up by that, um, versus the experience that can happen in recovery after. Second one, we talked about um, our third step experiences, um, sort of drew some parallels with our experience in the book and with the Bible. So we got a piece out of Paul out of that, and we had sort of talked about, you know, what is the recipe to have that kind of surrender experience? What is the, what is the pieces that go into despair to make that, to make that happen? Uh, and that kind of leads us to step four, um, and there's a couple of pieces. I, <laughs> confession is that I, I hadn't read, opened the big book in a long time, like several years, because I had it so well ingrained in, in my head. Um, and I actually opened it again this week to read over this because I thought like, all right, let's take a look. And there are two pieces of this that really strike me in, this, in the big book's discussion of inventory. Um, one is just like the, 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 the format of inventory itself is like, uh, it's sort of unprecedented in history as far as I can tell. Um, you have Oxford groupie stuff where they're um, doing self-assessment uh, and like examinations of their conscience by using um, the four absolutes, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. They're saying, where am I less than perfect in these areas? And they're finding out things about themselves, which is analogous or parallel to what we do in inventory um in the big book but it's not the same format it's not the same set of instructions it doesn't begin with resentment and then work it backwards into some kind of look at ourselves it doesn't begin in fears and then go toward god reliance and it doesn't sort of insist on um detailing our our sexual disaster in our life it doesn't it doesn't uh it doesn't have that kind of structure and it doesn't have that kind of thing. And I think often it wasn't even ever written down. It was just sort of something you prayed and 
um, maybe took notes about if you were doing quiet time, or maybe you just sort of used it to check your head when you were about to make a decision or something. So I have no idea where it, how it jumps from Oxford group um, for absolutes to big book, resentment, inventory, fear, inventory, sex, inventory, the, the roots of that. And even in that giant book about, you know, where did the, how do they write the big book? There's not really whisper of an answer to that. There's no like, that's about as thorough as you can get on a, on a review of how the big book came to be. So it's th that whole mystery and the, the fact of the way that it's laid out is really striking, right? It really is. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about how it works and like the different variants that people have. I, I talk to a lot of people who say, I do my inventory right out of the big book. Um, I just do the, you know, the resentments, fear and sex. And then when I ask them, um, well, what does that look like exactly? Then you get all these different answers. <laughs> what people do in the second column can be really different. What people do in third column can be really different. What people do in fourth column can be really different. Um, how many columns are there in any particular set of those things? And what is the... What are the limits of the utility of sex inventory is something that's like has grown and developed quite a lot in different circles. So um, it's pretty wild that like from this central text and these instructions that have been proven really powerful pe for people, it's sort of spread off in all kinds of different ways. Um, the other really striking thing for me about the this part of the big book is that, you know, it starts the book starts out telling us that we're allergic that we have this sort of crave, you know, drinking to overcome a craving beyond our control. It's this um, compulsive quality to our drug use or our drinking that's sort of physical about our bodies. We can't, um, it's in our DNA maybe, or it's just in the way our livers do something, or it's just like we're just different than ordinary people physically. And then it tells us that we're also different in the way that we're mentally wired. There's something different about our brains that we're maybe rational in all kinds of respects, but when it comes to alcohol or et cetera, we're strangely insane. Uh, meaning that we have a kind of um, psychopathic quality about us or something. There's sort of a, a break with reality when it comes to the fact that we can't safely use whatever substance or behavior it is. Um, we, block that out and then we go back and we use again anyway. Um, and then when it gets here, when it gets to like, okay, now let's get down to causes and conditions, it says we're selfish. Yeah. And it's such a jump. Yeah. It's not your body. It's not your brain. It's just you're selfish. It's a moral condition is the way that it sort of presents it. There's just something wrong with this morally. It doesn't say what the relationship is between was the selfishness causing me to be mentally blank spots and that's causing the bodily, it doesn't say what the relationship is between those things. Um, it just says like, putting aside the drink thing, you're a selfish bastard. <laughs> we got to look at that, right? Um, but I guess that's maybe my first question about inventories. What do we do with that? Like, what do they mean by selfishness? What is the relationship between those other elements? questions that the book doesn't answer what do you think yeah it's so so interesting um so if we say that it's rooted in selfishness we're just one step away saying it's rooted from uh, rooted in sin right so i probably said this in another episode 
there's an Augustinian notion of sin called concupiscence, which is disordered desire. I seek fulfillment in things that can't fulfill me. I can, I can ride with all of that. Um, but what's problematic about it is it seems to be saying that we're somehow more selfish or mm -hmm. special flavor of selfishness or a destructive selfishness, both self and other. And that's when it starts getting, you know, it, that's problematic. That's okay. really problematic. And so, you know, I don't know if this episode's worth getting into it, but I think that's where things like dislocation theory come to the rescue. Okay. We brought in the idea of what addiction is. We include process addictions. And then we start comparing cultures you know, and looking at the ones where there's less addiction or no addiction and then right. ours, and we start, you know, start going, oh, wait a minute. There's something else going on here that's probably very, very important. Right. Um, but on the other hand, somebody wanted to push back on that, and, I, and they do all the time, and I don't blame them, is if you, their fear is if you go too far down that road, then you're going to get past this, uh, you're going to uh, undermine this really important recovery principle of personal responsibility. Sure. Or even, I would, I don't know if, um, I think you're right. I think that's the, that's the argument. That's really the sort of like almost, it's like boots, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, almost sort of mentality in the book. Of like, or like, it's not quite that because it's, it's surrender and higher power are all baked into that, but it's like, no one else is going to fix you. Right. Okay. And you got to do it. Um, and I, I guess I don't, oh. without totally buying into that line of thinking, I think there's still real value in, um, like we have to be pragmatic about the ideas that we present to people who are new, right? It has to like matter to them, has to have value to them, um, and it has to like help them, right? It has to be something real, like. And quickly. Yeah, right. And we can't fix our whole culture before this guy gets over. So we have to do, we have to work what we've got in the room, which is just this guy. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, so the parts of that, of like, what does it mean to be dislocated and what does it mean to be selfish? Can we work on the individual's dislocation? Can we work on the individual selfishness? Are those related? I think they, I think they may be more related than it, it first seems. Well, um, I mean what I do with it is I tell them that, you know, if you, if you place how you feel ahead of everyone, you, you know, you're late for your appointments as Dunnington just said, or you're neglecting your marriage and children because of this thing, vodka or the gym or the job or whatever. Yeah. And no one would argue with that. You can call that selfish. No one would argue with that. But the only thing I would add to that, which is my, attempt at bringing this location and the steps together is the reason you're that selfish is because you don't feel good. Right. And so then we can, then we have the doors open to the causes and conditions piece. <laughs> right. I get, I always try to want to like snake that back around on itself. When you say that to be like, the reason you are selfish is because you don't feel good. I want to go. Yeah. But the reason you don't feel good is just because you're so selfish. 
<laughs> There's this weird, like, mutual. I think, yeah, I think that's the dance. Right. But, man, I see a lot of people don't feel good for some pretty valid and long standing sure. reasons. You know, that's the other thing about right, right. The, the sneaking it back, you don't feel good because you're self absorbed. Um, I think that actually plays better. I think that's one of the reasons why AA is dominated by white men. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, women aren't nearly as big and minorities are right. Rare. Right. Right. Systemic racism isn't a result of you being selfish, somebody being selfish. Yeah. Systemic sexism is not a result of somebody being selfish. Right. Well, it is about some people being selfish, but not the not the person in the room. I just saw this amazing James Baldwin quote where he went, white supremacy to me is Chase Manhattan Bank. I think people ought to think about that one for a bit. <laughs> <clears throat> um, well, I don't know that we're going to satisfy the audience on that. No, yeah. <laughs> There at least is some congruence with um, whether it's dislocation theory or the big book, they're going to come a point where we're talking causes and conditions. Right. I want to say too, in favor of like what you, what you're presenting is that if I come into the rooms all banged up and traumatized from situations that are not a result of my doing, or there's this weird interplay between like, you know, I got fucked up and taken advantage of or whatever. And then, you know, you tell me that I'm selfish for that. Your problem is you're selfish. When I know my problem is, no, I'm victimized in all these different ways. That doesn't sit right. That like no. really push somebody out of the rooms. I, well, I've seen it happen again and again. Right. And it's usually the people, you know, the ones that jump to mind are women who've been brutalized repeatedly and um believe it or not a few inmates i know mm -hmm. yeah, or former inmates sure no i definitely believe that so like is there so that's a, to me a real problem with the this idea of selfishness that it potentially is hurting more people than it's helping um and then we're going to go into resentment inventory we're going to say list all the people you're mad at <laughs> Right. Uh, and then, which is going to be all those abusers and all those systemic problems and everything else. Do you need to say hi to somebody? Uh, I'm being brought up <laughs> and it looks so good. And I'm like, wow, well, let's be the episode where Piers eats. <laughs> nice. Um, so resentment inventory, you're going to list all these people, people who hurt you yeah. really badly, who to your consciousness are the most pressing reason why you're getting fucked up in the first place. And then the book's going to force you to make this turn and say, well, where were you selfish? Where were you selfish? In every single one of those. So it's not, in a way, if it's, I think if it's, um, it presents itself to the person carrying trauma as like a deepening of victim blaming, right? So we have ways of like coaching people around that. I think like I've told people like, no, it's not, that's not what it is. Like, you know, maybe in, in uh, defiance of what the text is saying, 
what I'm saying. That's not, this is not about you taking ownership of the fact that you were abused. This is saying all those things are true and valid. How have you carried that forward into the rest of your life? Right. Um, which I think I, I've seen be really helpful to people. I have too. But it also is sort of like saying, let's ignore all the things that they did now. <laughs> let's ignore all the harm that they've done in the way that that's impacted you now. We've said it, it's on the page, and now we're pushing that away to focus on your thing. Well, maybe let's look at when it is helpful, how is it helpful? Okay. Because to me, it's helpful in that um, it, it can be really revelatory of patterns that repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, when things get tough, I will self-talk myself into I'm a failure or this is happening to me because of these things. You know, mm-hmm. reveal these things that can be really debilitating and really um, mm-hmm. repetitive. Uh, and, uh, Right. You want to add to that, or yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right on. I think there's also um, for me, and again, I'm coming from this privileged place of not having to carry that same kind of trauma and being the white guy who doesn't have systemic racism focus on him. Um, for me, there were moments of being like, uh, "Oh shit, this whole thing was of my own invention." This whole problem I had with the person was just me misreading stuff or um, wow, I never even realized how much I was just trying to get something out of them while pretending to be nice. Like stuff like that was like um, it's patterns, but it's also like a perspective shift in that I could suddenly see my own culpability in the problems that I said I had. Right. Um, Which works fine when those problems are not, caused by somebody who's abusing you for no reason. Yeah, okay, that was my question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, so when when it works, when it works really beautifully, I mean, for me, of course, and I think this is just generally true, a lot of my resentments are pretty trivial, pretty petty. Um, they're kind of often rooted in envy and jealousy and mm-hmm. competition. And, um, yeah. And they have power over me in part because I never speak them to anybody or admit them to myself because they are so petty and they would be embarrassing to be known. Right. Um, that's really powerful. Um, then there are people who maybe they even do abuse you, but they're difficult people. Um, and I, I often come to the realization that whatever demons they have, they really are powerless over them. And right. The right. expectation that they treat me differently than the rest of the world is just pissing in the wind. I'm going to you know, keep getting the same resentment. Right. Um, I think that's important what you just said. And that's very much in the language of the big book is this idea of shifting from seeing people as wrong and evil to seeing them as sick. Yes. The person who's harming me is spiritually sick and suffering, even as they make me suffer. And that I am also sick, maybe not ex- exactly that way, but I also make other people suffer. Even like ourselves, we're sick too. That's this what is it, right. Yeah. Not that we have to feel like 
the same level of responsibility as they do, but you can even feel pity for someone like that because they have to be the person who does that their whole lives. Yeah. Right? Right. However, yeah, this is interesting. I've never thought some of these thoughts, but then we have Bill Wilson saying, remember our rule is to be, I can't, I'd have to open the book, but. Like hard on ourselves more than on charitable to others. Right. And you really wonder if that has gotten a little radioactive. Right. Right. Um, but at any rate, so we got this list of these people yep. and, and we um, were writing these things and we're seeing these patterns and there are going to be these handful of very problematic ones where we were victimized and lucky enough to have a skillful sponsor. They're not going to ask us to own our right. being sexually abused at 11 years old. Right say, what did you do with that subsequent to that? Right. And then you read that. And ideally, it's cathartic. Right. Meaning that there's something that gets lifted, removed, lifted, put out. and, And one thing that never gets stated in the book, and I would cite this as a real shortcoming, at least with resentment inventory, it means that a, a, a really large degree of forgiveness has been achieved. Right. And uh, you can do that by going through your inventory again and saying, do I still harbor these resentments? And right. And then you're forgiven. Right. That's kind of a, that's kind of a, like a red light word for some people. Forgiveness. Like, um, they're like, I'm not fucking forgiving these people. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to get into that because, yeah. I'm not forgiving them, but I don't, what they did no longer has a hold on me. Yeah. Which I think you and I would both want to call that forgiveness, but some people would really not want to call that forgiveness. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, to me, I mean, if you look at the word, the German word for forgiveness is vergeben, um, to give for. Right. Um, It's almost like forgiving is doing something for the other person. Right. um, but then to forgive and forget, you know, that, that saying, it's kind of interesting because in the steps, I don't forget it in the sense of like, I don't remember it. I forgive it in that I, it's as though it didn't happen to me. Right. I don't, I don't feel it anymore. Right. Yeah. There's a process that goes on after we've been harmed or even after we've caught any kind of resentment where... I mean, this is the metaphor from the rooms is like people say resentments like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, um, which is funny, but also true. And also really interesting because it's like the reaction to something traumatic or just something incidental or whatever it is, something perceived is like all this weird self-punishing, self-harming, internalization, shaming myself. Um, and then that sort of becomes the, the life that I imagine and continue to imagine to lead. And what resentment inventory is hoping to do is not to change the fact that you were abused, but to free you from that pattern that has resulted. The sort of internal shaming and that 
Um, and it may not do it all the way. I've seen people have some pretty powerful experiences around trauma stuff and resentment inventory. And they're like, that pattern changes. Like, whew, they don't perpetuate the same problems in their lives anymore that they used to out of that. Um, but there's still effects. They still carry things about that past with them in their bodies, um, sometimes in their relationships and certain things that still uh, don't feel safe anymore, right? It's yeah. not like, um, or sometimes in their memories, even in the, in, well, that's like, yeah. that's interesting because I think that if the trauma's bad enough, um, there's a dissociative thing that happens. And I've seen this. There are people that pick up the notebook to write a fourth step. And only then do the trauma surface. Uh -huh. Happened to me, actually. Hmm. Um, wow. So that's one of these areas where you got to be really kind of careful. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, it might be helpful to just, you know, so I think trauma, well, I've already said this, but the, the lack of sophistication around trauma in the 12 steps is one of its liabilities, or it's one of those places where recovery may need to be augmented or pre mm -hmm. 12 step recovery augmented or preceded by something else for some people. Right. Um, but you know, people that are, have really bad trauma, the, 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 the research on this is just kind of stunning because they are far more prone to physiological problems later in life, especially mm. trauma ranging from heart disease to osteoarthritis and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, they also, um, they have constricted emotions often. Mm. So they don't have a full range of emotions, which means they don't react. They freeze up or they uh -huh. check out. And then if you get into depth psychology, there's this whole notion of a self-care system where the traumatized part of the psyche splits off and then this thing comes up around it to protect it. And I, I do believe that that dynamic speaks to something at the heart of addiction for a lot of people. Right. Right. That, you know, the, the drugs mean I don't have to feel. The drugs, at least for a period of time, give me um, some sort of social world. And I may be actually on some level finding people who are like myself beyond the addiction or maybe around the trauma and, and there's an understanding of maybe an unspoken understanding but a deep intuitive understanding of we're like this and this is why we do this right right it's like alien so on one hand we're saying like there's something really problematic about the language of selfishness um and the way it's presented and in, in an unskilled sponsored hands, you can be totally abused, maybe irre irrevocably spiritually abused by a sponsor who says, you can't get well until you say that your rape was your fault, for example. Yeah. So there's something really dangerous and like, even on the surface, like potentially off-putting and like um, gate, I don't wanna say gatekeeping because it's not exactly that, but like trauma. It's gaslighting. Yeah, right, right. There you go. That's the that's the dynamic. 
But then we're also saying that somehow like carefully going through that process and um, looking at whatever that inner dynamic is that is being called selfishness can be remarkably freeing for people who are suffering from the effects of trauma as well as from, you know, other kinds of resentment. So like, is that just a, a naming problem? Is there another name for whatever it is that's going on in us? Because like it sounds like it's saying like you're a bad person and that's why stuff happens to you. But I don't, I don't think that's what it means. Um, I think you're right to draw the comparison to sin. This is coming out of the Oxford Group context where they said um, they spelled sin like little s capital I little n, meaning the I in sin is the big I is the ego is the me 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 right. So it's like the ways in which we become sort of imploded. We get sucked into ourselves. Um, and that can just be because we're boneheads like me who are worried about how we feel, or that can be because it, it's not safe out there. People are going to hurt you if you go out there. Um, well, we're constellating these things. So, you know, I was talking to somebody today who's helping someone else, a third person who's gone through a terrible, terrible trauma late. And this person's experienced the trauma she's they're not addicts uh, she's reaching out for god and you know this person said does everybody want god and you know I, I of course i could say on some level they must but i said everybody wants meaning everyone wants love and everyone wants to be seen right and i think recovery um can fall short and all of those. And then I also, you know, I know people too that if they really want those things, it looks pretty clouded over because there seems to be other people who want power, uh -huh. um, money. And, you know, so it's like, I don't know. I just, I do think that this guy uh, that Alexander taps into this Martin Barrow guy saying, yeah, there's societal sin and then there's individual sin. Mm -hmm. And when the culture reinforces the great eye, which wants power, then you have something that's going to promote violence and greed and competition. Yeah. Right. Addiction is going to spread, um, but there. I do believe that you know there's something flawed in human nature, and uh, addiction is a yeah. I think so. Yeah, and now I'm wondering: is addiction uh, reflective? I had a theology professor who said addiction was just the human condition on steroids. Sure. Um, but on the other hand, is addiction more like Jung would say is less of less the result of a flaw and more of the result of a distortion of something that's actually good? Oh, that's very that's very twelve and twelve. It's very Bill Wilson and the the and Tom Powers, I think, too, looking at inventory again and saying instincts out of balance or instincts gone awry or something something along those lines. Mm. But like. You know, we've just gone too far with the thing that is natural and important, right? 
um, in all these areas. It's a desire for ecstasy, which is spiritual. That's spiritual. Ecstasy meaning to give oneself to something. Right. So like pointed at the wrong thing or taken to an extreme in some way that's like inappropriate to think. Or you're not getting it anywhere else. And this is the last. Right. You have no relationships that you can give yourself away to. So you give yourself away to this thing. I want to have a couple, couple of threads, threads of thought here. And they sort of revolve around like, if we were going to do, is it useful? Like, so this dislocation stuff and this, like what addiction actually is, and is all um, fairly intellectual. Um, it sort of relies on abstract comments like, or abstract concepts like society is structured a certain way and therefore the people in it are individualized in relationship to that and so become this sort of subjectivity like i'm not going to say that to the new guy <laughs> right i might i might like in an educational group but like when we're sitting down to do the work and write inventory am i going to say well a couple of things coming out of this one if we replace the word selfishness with something like dislocatedness what would be the effect of that on the big book inventory? Obviously we're rewriting the big book, which is taboo, but um, we're not beyond that. Um, but we're not opposed to that. Um, like how, like instead of saying selfish and we say dislocatedness, does that get at the same stuff or is it getting at something very different? And my second reflection is like, I think there's a pretty valid inventory to write that is about how has the culture impacted me individually in relationship to my addiction? How have like social forces kind of shaped who I am as an addict? Yeah. I think that's a valid inventory. I, I think it gets to something important, but not the same as the big book inventory we're talking about. Yeah. I so think, both of those, I have both of those in my head as we. I think you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm trying to do this, and I'm not seeing that it's too intellectual or too this mm. or that. Um, I mean, I'm sure some people complain that, but uh, the idea that selfishness is just this, you got to a place where you put your feelings ahead of everyone else, and you're so thoroughly conditioned to do that, yeah, to follow you into sobriety. Right. Ideally, if you get into recovery, you're going to be working with that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really big, but to push back a little on from uh, on the rest of it uh, today, there's an article in the Boston Globe about the spike in opioid deaths amongst African American men. Sixty nine percent in one year, Jeez. massive spike. And they interview this guy, this black man who, who works in in the field, but he also has fourteen years. And, you know, he just comes right out and he says, one of the problems is there aren't many black providers. Mm. And meaning- and treatment providers. Treatment, yeah. And so that there aren't these guys speaking to what it was like coming up in the hood mm -hmm. um, or dealing with the police or what what prison is to that that population compared to white people right all those sorts of things um so i think though that what you just you know i've, I've 
kind of incoherent in my mind, but I've often thought, I've been recently been thinking that you do, you could do all the steps the way people do them, but at some point you do this sort of a dislocation narrative. Mm -hmm. Obviously you have to coach them, you know, you know, whole section, you know, or an eye for economics. You know, what was the economic status of your family? Mm -hmm. It was really high. What were the drawbacks of that? If it, if it dropped precipitously, what happened? Um, for some people, I think the culture around drug use could be much more illuminating than others. Uh, you know, the Irish, uh, Native American, it might be a little harder for, you know, mongrel, mongrel white folks like ourselves. Right. Um, I think gender, uh, sexual identity, uh, mm -hmm. I think the role of um, pop culture, you know, that's, that's a conversation that never gets talked about. You know, literally being a little kid adolescent and watching these just glamorized world of drugs and crime and sex and you know we never we never you see that this is what really gets me about this is I feel like if we you know at this point selfishness is just sort of a symbol of something bigger this 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 is this is the world and really that's the context for this but we do this right and we and it even manifests to the point of you know hanging out in basements and what you yeah. keep here let's stay here <laughs> you know it's like reinforces this thing of like you know we're gonna walk down the street and no one's gonna know that you have you know, broken needles in your arm you're gonna get on the train with your right <laughs> super anonymity yeah yeah, and 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 um, somehow removing the addiction from the world, yeah, fixing it in private, and yeah. then nothing comes back to the world. That's right, and and no blame is put or no examination of the world. Well, I think that stumble there was telling because like blame versus exam. You said no blame. I mean examination. Like, I think in that little yeah, piece is like what the criticism of this would be, right? I one time went into an NA meeting uh, and said that I'm pretty sure I'm a drug addict because my parents sucked, something like that. <laughs> and the rest of the meeting was about how bullshit that was, right? And how um, nobody else is responsible for my addiction but me. I can't get better if I keep blaming people. Um, and that it wasn't directed at me, but it was people, you know, how people do, like, in my experience, da 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 da. And they're really talking about you and what you said was stupid. Um, I think they were all right. I think, I, you know, I took that home. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm all right. Um, right about that example. Hmm? They, may, again? they may have been right about that example. Right. But, you right. know, I look back and my drug addiction has an inevitability to it now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't see how I could have dodged the bullet. Right. But they, they trained me to, you know, we talked about this in our very first, not big book talk, but our first talk. They trained me to say, parents love me, 
they never wanted for anything. Yeah. I'm going to go to college and I, I take the wrong turn. Yeah. Sixth grade. Right. You know, that's almost like a, like some version of just say no. Or, <laughs> right? you, know, like, you did the, you fucked up by taking it in the first place. Yeah. And yeah. so that's also giving me a sense of, uh, or ascribing to me a sense of personal responsibility that we don't let 11 year olds own guns and drive cars. Right. 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 You know, so it gets kind of, it's very wonky in there. And right. I'm also discouraged in a way. That's what happened to you. I'm discouraged from speaking about the dysfunction of my parents' marriage or my mother's mental sure. health or my getting beat up in the neighborhood. That's all, you know, Right. It all, in a way, becomes another version of the tenth tradition of outside issues. Right. The narrative has to be very so. When you look at um, the Well Brieding movement, and you yep. you were more read about them than I am. Yeah. Um, this is uh, Don Coyas and other Native American people in recovery taking a look at the steps, saying, you know. A lot of people in, in this culture say that's a white people thing. It's not good to us. So we're going to kind of integrate it into our own traditions. Um, and if I'm right about this, part of that process is saying that, you know, our addictions exist in the social context. Yep. In the context of intergenerational trauma. Yep. Nobody's saying that, <clears throat> you know, 400 years of colonialism is all my fault in their resentment inventories in the well variety movement, I assume. Yep. So um, you and me, a couple of white guys trying to figure out how to make this thing social. It seems like that just maybe comes more naturally in communities where the problem has always been very clearly something yep. bigger, right? Where there's different skin color and actual reservations, designated areas to live and, mm. That's right. So they say that, well, two things that are very striking about them is they say they are being asked to forgive the unforgivable. Mm -hmm. okay, so they, they say, you know, this is a very high, but if we don't forgive the unforgivable, we are going to continue doing, many of us are going to continue engaging in behaviors that are harmful to the next generation. Mm -hmm. The other thing they say is that the solution is not just some Native Americanized version of the 12 steps. The solution is actually in the culture. They say returning to the culture is the solution to addiction because addiction for them is about being ripped from the culture. Mm. Right. Okay. And, um, and, and they and so when I met those folks, but long before I heard of this location theory, they were the ones who told me that there is no addiction in intact indigenous cultures, which right. you know, this time I heard that my jaw dropped. But they're right. right. It's not even debated. But the problem with this is return to the culture. What, Our culture is not Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what to do. No, you have to like you know, 
change or create culture. That's right. I think that part of it, we may not have to forgive the unforgivable, most of us, but we're challenged by our very culture or lack thereof, depending on how you define culture. Um, right. So what we managed to do is we managed to create a recovery culture that has a lot to a lot of good things come out of it, but, sure. it, but it's, it's sort of at odd, uh, how to put it. It's not, it's, it's not in relationship with larger culture. It doesn't have a, a social mission broader than if you're all banged up and fall to the bottom of the ladder, come on in. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and it refuses to critique the culture. Right. I mean, you're right. free to do that on your own, but you're not allowed to do that within the context of the 12 step group. Right. For, and now we critique that a lot, but we should at least also acknowledge the reasons why that's the tradition, which is there's a fear that once you talk about those things, then you're bringing uh, sort of political debate into the meeting space. And then that's potentially, well, guaranteed to be divisive in a way that everybody talking about their disease is not right. Um, and that if that takes precedence over the important work of identification um, and personal recovery, then you might lose those, those two valuable things. Right. And, yeah. I, and I, and I side with that for sure. I do too. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, what do we really mean? So if, if there is politics around big pharma that's leading children into addiction or, or you know, Oxycontin and all this, yeah. right. boy, that need, needs to be discussed at some point by somebody. Right. Um, if minorities and women are underserved or feel unwelcome for a variety of reasons or like they don't belong boy you have a discussion about that you're in the politics yeah 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 so you know this is the sort of thing in resistance recovery that i'm really i try to really um you're free to talk about geopolitics and big pharma and prison industrial complex but let's not talk about trump Let's not <laughs> Black Lives Matter. Let's mm. not talk about abortion. Let's not talk about sure. these are all political things that, you know. You see, the thing that really gets me is we're such a large group of people. And we actually really do come across the whole political spectrum. Right. And if we had something, we could really, we could push legislation that would be really helpful to people suffering from addiction because right. we're, we're that big. Well, and I think we have too. That should, that should go, we shouldn't neglect the fact that there's sort of been a parallel movement to the recovery movement or piece of the recovery movement that has always been um, politically and socially focused that's sort of parallel or shadow to AA and it, its affiliates which is like Marty Mann from the beginning 
is like trying to do work that changes the social reality for alcoholics. Um, and then I'm not going to get this right, but there's later, there's like, there have been, you know, federal law passed to support um, the anonymity of addicts and treatment, for example, or to support um, the existence of treatment in different ways, or at a state level, there's been laws that are like you know, treatment instead of prison or treatment in prison or, it's right. true. There is some of that, but, you know, I think that it's just way too little. Sure. Yeah. It's not, it's not the main thing, but it's people working on the side. The history is there. It's just not, you know, but, but we, it comes down to these things like should benzodiazepines be the number one treatment for anxiety, right? Should doctors be able to prescribe them? without telling you that they're potentially lethal on withdrawal. Right. Uh, should, should federal dollars be spent, you know, you know, the, the thing that becomes glaringly obvious after a while is that the state is, seems to be federal or local, seems to be incapable of admitting they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And they also, they never say we're not the experts. Or they're always the experts by virtue of being elected officials or being having these doctors who who do they work for? I don't know. Right, right. You get it. I'm just saying that it just frustrates me because I really think <laughs> really have an effect, and we could not be partisan. You see, we have to be. We are the resistance recovery chapter of 25,000 members. Yeah. We vote. This issue is going to determine how we vote. Sure. Or, Anonymous. or you can, you could literally, if you were big enough and organized enough, you could lobby legislators to pass legislation. Sure. Right. Well, and there's plenty of people on Capitol Hill that are like us and just not public about it. And, Right. And, and, Talking to them about things that could go better for addicts is, you know. It never goes anywhere. Right. Well, it has. It, it, sometimes it does. <laughs> sometimes, the, and the his, there is a history of things sometimes working out. Um, yeah. It's never going to be uncontested. It's never going to be easy. I just so, think we don't feel our own power. Right. I want to observe, too, that, like, so now we're pretty far distance from yeah, I was thinking inventory. Well, <laughs> I think, and that's part of the critique of this kind of thinking is that we are now into making large-scale social interventions but not talking about sort of the personal transformations that happen when some things like selfishness it's about you and your actions and your orientation toward the world then it leads to personal transformation personal change all the things we talked about as being part of recovery right, right. and it also leads to the cessation of harmful behaviors to your family and community. Right, which is a social effect in itself. There's no doubt about it. And right. Huge. And it incidentally also leads to these communities of people who gather together to promote this sort of behavior, which is the recovery movement. Right. Which is another social effect that is not necessarily politically transformative, but in a way it kind of is. And it is, it is. Right? I, I would say that it's unfortunate that there's a taboo against Right. Well, I guess the, the question is like, if you write the, if you write the, um, 
dislocation inventory. Mm-hmm. You just end up with um, social mission. Not that that's bad, but do you, do you, is there something that um, becomes personally transformative as well as socially transformative out of that? I, I think uh, alone, no. Right. I think the two in conjunction, my assumption would be that that's where the money is. Right. Yeah, not, so I don't think I should be clear. Like when I'm toying with the idea of what was the dislocation inventory look like, can we replace selfishness with dislocation? I'm not suggesting that like that kind of thing should replace no. the examination of conscience. But, but you're, you're doing that James thing where there's this little man up in your head now, like, oh, damn, we're going to figure out how to write us. <laughs> yeah. How does it work? What does it look like? Yeah. That's some shit. How do we operationalize that? I guess a couple, a thing that I really want to do um, before, you know, we've really gone quite a while. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'd like to talk about the overall status of inventory in the scheme of things with recovery. Sure. Um, because what I've seen, um, and I think, you know, in my world, this is largely coming out of a certain Plymouth uh, House culture, is yeah. I've I believe to be an overvaluation of inventory or maybe a misunderstanding of what it really is. Yeah. And and my thing is that it's a form of self-examination, which you see in most spiritual traditions. And there's something kind of attention with it where, when you first do it, when you write that first fourth step, this thing that you're earnest and all that, there's fireworks. There really is. And then there's this period of time where 10 step becomes a really effective way of negotiating early recovery, work and marriage. And I think it should be written. That's just my opinion. But then it gets to this place where I guess the way I would phrase it is much of what could be changed via inventory in one's life has been changed. Mm. And now that magical expectation of early inventory is down the road. It's with us in 10 step and we're not getting those kinds of results. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate this bitch and I, I always have, and I still do. And <laughs> I'm having these problems in my relationship because I'm not a good listener and I never have been. I'm still not. Mm -hmm. And so then it starts becoming, I think it can become shaming at that point. Oh, okay. And also, you know, it's, you're missing an opportunity to be humble, human. Um, You're, you're, you may be overvaluating its, its, its efficacy deeper into recovery over things like the 11th step, you know, it just doesn't, it's not, I don't think it was ever meant to be the horse that you rode into the sunset. Right. Yeah. You're pointing out a couple different things that are really interesting. Um, the way you ended is, is interesting and where you started was interesting. The ending is the sort of like, what does inventory look like over a long-term course of recovery and what are its impacts there? Um, and the other one is like, are there ways in which certain um, traditions or sponsorship traditions or 
treatment traditions within the 12 steps have like placed too much emphasis on writing? Um, both of those are really interesting questions. Um, I think I'll start with the, the treatment one. Um, when I talk to people in, in for my um, dissertation, I was like, I wanna know about writing and how it's important to you in recovery and like what your experiences were with different kinds of writing and like how it affected you and what you think of it. Um, people named a whole bunch of different kinds of writing that I wasn't expecting, like everything from like song lyrics to poetry to um, letters and emails and text messages and stuff, but also, but everybody sort of had this sort of nexus in common, which was the fourth step. Right? sort of the big centerpiece for what recovery writing is um, and, and tenth step as well. Um, but there was also sort of a cautionary thing when I said, you know, I would ask people like, is writing necessary to recovery? Is it essential? Do you have to have it? Is it? And a lot of people would say yes, but most people said, um, some people, a few people said no, because um, they had to imagine a non-literate version of recovery or you could get it some other way. Um, some people said yes, absolutely, be just because the social nature, like the historical nature of the literacy practices within 12 steps, the 12 steps say to write things. So how do you go about not writing things? Some people said, um, yeah, it's necessary, but it's not the writing itself that's the thing. It's, it's something that happens in the process of writing and sharing what you've seen, that that's the thing, right? Um, and it's dangerous. I was some, for some people, even warned me, like, hey, if you make this all about the writing, you're going to miss the point. You know, I know that your, college, your university wants to figure out how this teaches us things about writing, but if you overestimate the value of writing here, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fuck up because it's not just putting words on paper that's helping us. It's this sense of like connecting to truth, connecting to power, connecting to God, connecting to other people um, and, and seeing things about ourselves that we hadn't seen before. Like it's those experiences that writing facilitates that are valuable. The writing itself is like, it's just there. If, if, it, if, if it was historically different, we had a different technique, then that would be what it was. But the writing is particularly good for some of these things, but um, it's not the thing itself. It's not like you turn in your inventory and if it has good grammar, then you go and you get an A. Not at all. It's like the writing is just there to provide a kind of experience, right? That is, that is first sort of introspective and inward looking, but then it facilitates a conversation. So it's by nature a social kind of a writing, which is like, I need to see myself and then I need to tell you what I've seen. Um, in one way or another. Um, and that that sort of loop is, is the thing. Um, but it's not never out of context of the rest of the steps, which means that it's, you know, the inventory is supposed to be the, the, the forward to amends. So I'm supposed to write, find out about myself, tell you about it, and then go make it right. Not just by thinking or feeling a certain way inside myself, but by like, in doing something in the world. There's somebody out there that I've hurt because of this, you know? I'm not a good listener. It impacts people certain ways. It's not changing. Are there concrete steps I need to be doing to be a better listener or to like um, be different in my relationship to that so that people don't get as offended or wounded or something by it? Is there a different relationship to that that I can enact in my amends? Um, 
And if I just like, and, and this is the problem with treatment, you mentioned Plymouth House is sort of like one of many places across the country where writing is kind of the big thing. We're going to get you in. We're going to take you through three steps. We're going to get you through an inventory, maybe through step seven, and then off you go out into the world. Good luck. Um, and because of that, you know, because writing a big inventory takes time. Um, most of the treatment is focused around this big writing project. It's sort of like a writing retreat. Um, and then those essential necessary completion of that process is, is left to the wild, basically. Like either you just go out to places and maybe you get a sponsor who tells you what to do, or maybe you don't. Maybe you keep reading the book. Maybe you don't. Maybe you go to a sober living house where that's more structured for you. We can talk about how that works or not sometime. But they, there can be this sense of like, and this, you know, Jerry said this about Plymouth House, like this, they think that the writing's magic or something. It's not, that's not what it is. It's, it's, um, it's supposed to be facilitating an experience that then gets translated into an important connection with the sponsor and then an important connection with people we've harmed as a result of what we see. So there's like, a, a, it's like interrupted sometimes by the kind of like a, the end of a treatment program. Um, and certainly expecting inventory to by itself make me feel better or solve my problem because I saw it in the inventory. I saw that I was a bad boy again. Like that is just this little pool of like, just like you're saying, like beating up on myself. And it's not, it's not translating into the confession and then restitution or whatever we want to call it. It's not moving forward into me being different or just accepting like, hey, this has been 10 years of saying, finding out I'm a bad boy in the same way. Maybe I just need to accept that about myself and, you know, be that guy <laughs> in some, some different way than just feeling bad about it, which is not helping anybody. Um, I guess that's, so I'm kind of leading into the long tail of it is like, what's the use over time? Um, my experience has been that like I wrote a ton of 10 step inventory in the first several years of recovery. Um, and then it sort of became crisis mode management. And then it sort of has petered off into like, you know, occasionally something will really stick in my craw and I go for it. But um, mostly I have, I don't write a lot of inventory anymore. You said that to me early on. You're like, I hope my recovery is such that I don't have to do so much of this stuff eventually. <laughs> So I think, you know, the process you're talking about of like, you know, it's utility is sort of seen its time and now I'm in a different phase. That seems kind of like what we were hoping it would do, right? Right. But then, you know, the, the thing that I see happening is people in sort of mid-range recovery, two to five years or something, mm -hmm. they start encountering these things in life and in themselves that aren't, that are change resistant and they are. Uh, yeah. They write the inventory and the problem persists and they get told that uh, they're not doing it right. They don't sure. change. Right. Um, the most extreme things you hear is that some of these behaviors are equivalent to a relapse. Right. So you've relapsed. You're not high, but you're mm -hmm. still eating. You're still overweight. Sure. So this is a relapse. And so right. this sort of shaming thing uh, gets really, really ugly. And this is where I think it's sort of shadow side of um, Tony Robbins and certain new thought things make its way in. Mm. Where it's sort of idea that you can, you can become perfect. You oh, can right. 
infinitely perfectible while you were in this body. Right. And, um, you know, obviously that just destroys any sense of the value of humility, mm. the value of laughing at your own foibles or being tolerant of someone else's. Right. Um, so it just seems competitive and, and destructive. And I right. do think the 11th step is a real antidote for that. Um, prayer and meditation. And yes, right. There's a reason why that's there too. But there's things that are not going to be, I guess the, oh God. So the worst thing that I've had to deal with in long-term recovery has been um, my occasional anger as a parent. That is uncharacteristic of me in most of my relationships. There's just certain ways that kids can push your buttons that nobody else can. Um, and sometimes I would get loud in my kids in ways that I'm like embarrassed by and ashamed of. Um, that I would write inventory about again and again, uh, that I would meditate about again and again. Like maybe if I'm just like calm enough, I won't get my buttons pushed. Or maybe if I see something deep enough, I won't get my buttons pushed and I won't I'll be less loud. Um, and those things didn't fix it. Those things weren't, I just felt shitty about myself. Like, why am I bothering doing, you know, all this centering prayer every day um, if I'm just going to like fall off the beam immediately as soon as like, I don't know. Somebody complains about something, or like, we're interrupting the center of prayer. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, in the session itself. So, like, um, I just want to be loving towards my kids. I don't ever want to get upset with them, but you know, everybody gets upset with their kids sometimes. It's something you have to accept and then negotiate. I made tons of amends to my kids, right? Like, hey, dad shouldn't have yelled like that. It's not okay. Can you tell me how you feel about that? I did it again. I yelled. I shouldn't have yelled, right? Um. Well, it isn't, it's like apologizing a hundred times is, is like, that is not what you owe the people that you're harming to keep harming them and then saying, you're sorry. You have to like be different about it. And then at some point, um, actually my kids got more mature than I did is what happened. <laughs> so they sort of evolved out of the dynamic in a way that I didn't. Um, but there were also like really, these really practical things that came up that were like, all right, you're, you're still going to be an asshole sometimes because for whatever reason, a certain emotional reaction from this kid is going to set this off. And it's just like, you're, this, you don't seem to be able to fix that through prayer and inventory and stuff. But what if like, um, you didn't, there were certain like high stress situations that were happening for whatever reason. It was like kid A is doing chores and I'm cooking and the, you know, Heidi's not around and um, it creates this weird, like every Wednesday night, there's an argument because everybody's stressed out about whatever they're doing, right? So is there like, can we just like not do that dynamic on Wednesday nights? Can I like, like maybe how about we order out hamburgers every Wednesday night so dad's not cooking while you're doing the chore and it doesn't create this whole, you know, just like, instead of expecting myself to be perfect, sometimes it's like looking for like a practical thing. It's just like, oh yeah, well, now we don't have that argument. It's not like, I want to like, transcend all my problems and this is very like hillman almost like i want to like shoot spiritually past all my flaws into this you know spiritual plane where i'm like oh children <laughs> i am your father and everything's fine um but i'm not ever going to fucking do that there's this limit to like i'm still going to be human and right. so like looking for like all right given that this isn't going away what do i do to like like what are the practical things 
right? I, and inventory doesn't really look good. Sometimes it does. That, that's more like a prayer thing of like, what do I do? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost begs the question of should these should there be some literature written about these sort of long-term things, right? Yeah. Um, two things come to mind. We should probably think about winding up, but yep. one is um, I spoke with somebody yesterday who was, you know, we were gossiping, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And about all these people, many of whom were my clients once upon a time, who are pretty prominent in the field, not on the delivery of anything, but on owning things, um, management, higher level treatment center kind of stuff. And they said that many of them have an attitude of recovery itself as having been a kind of kindergarten, that they don't Mm -hmm. really do any of it anymore. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, And this person noted that the ones that were explicitly saying that, you know, they got some behaviors that were kind of off the charts. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I wonder if, you know, is recovery an appropriate way to even phrase things when you're 25, 26 years in. Right. And yet prayer, meditation, spiritual literature, trying to help some people, you know what? Call it what you want. But yeah. Right, but you can grow in those areas. Yeah. The other thing is Jung was really interesting about this. He said explicitly, he said, you are gonna have problems in your life that are forever intractable till the right. day you die. This is just your thing. And you're gonna to try to fix it and try to fix it and try to fix it. And he says, the only thing that can really happen here that's really positive is not that this will ever be resolved. But with the language he used, he said, but your consciousness, your awareness of this, what this teaches you, what this shows you, maybe the humility, I don't think he said that. He said, will actually get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that'll have the effect of making this thing smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, remember how, what an asshole you were when we were kids? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's really helpful. And, and, you know, and other people would say about Jung, of course, these are admirers of Jung. They would say, he wasn't the nicest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even the best guy in the world. But he knew himself. Mm-hmm. Like few people did. And so right. knowing himself, at least he could sort of do quite a bit of damage control. Right. Right. It's probably the best word for it. Yeah. So we didn't figure out how to write the dislocative inventory. <laughs> Project ongoing. I think you're supposed to get the contract for that. That's right. <laughs> All right. So for the audience, one more session, and we'll probably be into, I expect, um, 9, 11, 12. Yeah. Sounds good. Excellent. Thanks, Pierce. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at 
resistancerecovery.com.